and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. So, why'd you want to become a cop? <laughs> wow. Straight up ambush. I like it. After getting squared away in a pre-9-11 stint with the Canadian Armed Forces, Seb Lavois served as a police officer in the RCMP for more than 20 years. Much of Seb's career was spent in specialized units, the little-known Air Marshal program, followed by over a decade in the BC Emergency Response Team. In Canadian policing, ERT is the tip of the spear. Seb retired in 2021 at the top of his game as Division Sergeant Major for EDIV, the largest division of the RCMP. Seb and I sat down to talk about life in the teams, leadership, pursuing excellence, and life after policing. Seb is an incredibly interesting guy. His presence commands your attention. He's focused and intense in his thinking, but warm and quick to laugh. He's also working on a book. It's a sunny day here in Vancouver, and this is Ground Zero. This is episode one with Seb Lavoie. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. I think having been on a wrong end of injustice was a big thing for me. I was a visible minority growing in Quebec at the time, at a in the 70s, 80s, where, uh, and I lived in the suburbs where there wasn't many of us. And so I often, always found myself on the wrong end of it. And um, it, it didn't matter if it was what was happening to me just specifically, but also what was happening around the world. It was the Cold War and there was a whole bunch of scares going on everywhere. And I just, I just was an empath and I had this visceral disdain for injustice. And, and so it, it may sound, you know, cheesy to some as far as, um, as far, but, but it is the reality. I was the type of kid that was always interjecting with other people being discriminated against or whatever. So, so it was a, it was a big thing for me and, uh, and yeah, it, it led me straight to an avenue that I knew I was going to be able to treat people the way I wanted to be treated and the way, um, to prevent in a way and, and have the ability to interfere with, uh, perceived injustice, so to speak. So whether or not that that's happened all the time in the totality of the circumstances based on, you know, law and based on, on, on predicated factors, but certainly it wasn't for lack of trying. And, and that led you to the RCMP. That is correct. I mean, I would be lying if I said that I never applied anywhere else because I did. And in Quebec, it was very hard to get into policing and my background wasn't, my academic background wasn't uh, nearly as conducive to be successful in the municipal departments, say in Quebec City, in, in Quebec province. DRCMP was a little bit different, but also my exposure to DRCMP in Quebec was almost like this is a federal agency that has, you know, it's more like the FBI or whatever. And I, I never had the Mountie growing up in my small town, you know, Whereas for us in Quebec and in Ontario, it's more nebulous and mysterious right. and perhaps even appealing. Right. But that's a good thing. The, yeah. the federal presence of the Mounties, um, I'm picturing some Quebecois saying that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. It was for you. Yeah, absolutely. I just, uh, we didn't exactly know 
you know, what they did, but we just knew that every time there was something substantial or massive in scope at the time, mostly biker related or, or, or organized crime related, um, the Mounties, the federal units were out doing their thing, you know, so to speak. So, so that takes you to Regina. That is correct. In 2000, at the age of 21. 21, and uh, so it's depot. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of marching. <laughs> well, that's part of it, yeah. Then you're West Coast. Yes, so my first posting was Tofino on the island. Um, really tough, yeah. really tough <laughs> spot to yeah. be posted yeah. at. <laughs> um, it, but you know what's interesting is <clears throat> I really didn't know about Tofino. I mean, I've never, I'd never heard of it. I mean, perhaps if you're from the West Coast, you would, you would know, have heard of it. But even being from out of province altogether, I didn't even know it to be the incredible spot that it is. So when, when they first told me where I was going, I was surprised because I asked for Surrey. Right. I was wanting to go to Surrey, but I think those who knew better made some calls that were extremely beneficial for me. You're disappointed at the time you're not in Surrey. I mean, Surrey is the hotspot. That's correct. I, I think my view of, of wh- where I saw myself uh, cutting my shops on in, in the policing world was urban environments because that's where I came from. But that's uh, you know, a gross oversimplification of the benefits of small town policing and the benefits of being in the community. And if I look back, Evidently, I have zero regrets. Quite to the contrary, I'm glad somebody made that call. But uh, but yeah, as a young buck, you know, wanting to go out in policing, right. I was wanting to be in an urban setting. And Tofino is a dozen members and pretty sleepy, is that? No, at the time it was five okay. members and um, we, we worked alone on shift. So we never really had backup. Right. The backup was in bed. So if something went majorly pear shape on you you needed to a problem solve <laughs> by yourself yeah. and and b hope hope that uh, the time delay wouldn't be catastrophic which sounds to me like a, a kind of a typical mountie experience i mean whether you're in tofino or northern manitoba saskatchewan you name it alone on shift backup is 20 minutes an hour away it's life for a lot of mounties Yep, you're 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 absolutely correct. It is, and it's um, absolutely the stuff of luck <laughs> that that we don't have any more casualties that than we do. If if this was uh, the U.S., for example, we we would have had a lot more issues in in some of those smaller communities where where cops are essentially by themselves, and then they become quite easy to regain your freedom or to keep your freedom if the only person standing between you and freedom is one person. Right, right. Um, so how many years are you in Tofino? Uh, three years. And what's next for you? Following the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, uh, a unit was created called uh, the Canadian Air Carrier Protective Program, and I became an in-flight safety officer, and if so, uh, following, uh, what year was it now? Uh, 2003-ish. Um, I became, I, I joined a unit and uh, and became an, an air marshal, as we call it internally. And I mean, 
what is that program? It's not something I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Air Marshal program is a covert is a covert section. I mean, the existence is known, but the the specifics of of deployments or or flight selection or whatever is is evidently secret. Um, and it and it is a tactical unit that serves the purpose of preserving life, either on the plane or to prevent a terrorist attack. So having the plane used as a vehicle to create terror, such as, you know, dumping it on a major target on the ground or as it was for the 9-11 Twin Towers. And so it's a, it's a very dynamic section that has a very special and specific mandate. And it's quite different from everything else in the RCMP in terms of rule of law and use of force, those types of things. It's quite different. So how does a guy doing general duty in Tofino find himself in a sort of a elite covert unit? Yeah, well, I always had a a strong propensity for elite uh, tactical units. And when I left the military, which I did three years in the military prior to joining the RCMP, shortly after 9-11, my unit the 22nd Quebec Regiment actually deployed to Afghanistan. And of course, I'm looking at this going, not that there's any sort of glamorization of combat or war on my part, but ultimately I had trained with those guys for all those years. And now they're, they're heading off to war without me. And um, that wasn't an, an acceptable prospect for me to see, you know, my, my friends and my, and my teammates and my unit members, my regiment members go out and do the things while I was policing a a world away. And so was there a way for me to bridge that gap? And absolutely there was. There was this special unit that was created to a specific purpose and and I was, you know, capable of doing it. So um, that was enough for me. But, but there's a selection process. It's, it's not just sign up and, and you get this sort of training. You have to demonstrate aptitudes or a skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit more complex now. Uh, at the time, the selection was mostly you showed up in Ottawa and there was some shooting evolutions that you were expected to, to, to do well on. And if you didn't, you were sent immediately. So you didn't even get to start the course. So you needed a baseline before you even started. The physical capabilities weren't nearly as tested at the time, whereas the unit now tests for physical capabilities as well. And that serves its multi-purpose purposes. It's, it serves the purpose of eliminating people that could potentially get weeded out as a result of not being fit enough or not being, you know, have the tools to mm-hmm. negotiate the, the intense training. Um, but also there's a lot there was a lot more demand on the program at the time when i started like it was brand new and they were they were trying to fill it so there was less of a need to you know stop people from coming in right. whereas now there there has to be a bit of a selection so that they have reasonable and manageable numbers and uh without putting too fine a point on it is this is this plain clothes police officers riding in airplanes that is correct yes so you never know if there's a cop sitting beside you. You do not. Okay. <laughs> Likely multiple. <laughs> um, okay. And what's next for you after that? Um, yeah. So 2006, I was allowed or 
or um, I asked to go to emergency response team selection, which is the, the SWAT equivalent basically in Canada, in the RCMP Lower Mainland District Emergency Response Team, which is located in the Vancouver area and is a full-time team. And, um, and yeah, I asked to go for selection in 2006. I passed selection and I ended up going on the course that year. And in 2007, around April 23rd, I joined the Lower Mainland District Emergency Response Team. So when you say selection, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So at the time, I believe it was a three or four day um, endeavor. And it's essentially, you know, everything you can possibly expect your SWAT cops to be tested on. So patrol tactics, uh, firearms, cognitive abilities, judgment, teamwork, fitness, uh, problem solving abilities. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, um, and we started with, I don't know, 36, I believe. And I think six, six or seven, maybe eight of us made it. And that was quite the dramatic passing rate and normally isn't that high, but we had a really good, uh, a really good group. And there's a selection within British Columbia. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, even to go on this course, I mean, you need support from your immediate supervisor, you need support from your detachment. Yeah, absolutely. So you needed support from your your immediate supervisors. There was a there was also peer reviews, you know, just to and and again, it's like if if, if there was a, a an incident that occurred, say, between you and somebody else at work and it was a one on one kind of thing and the person gave you a poor a poor review, well, that wouldn't be a, a make it or break it. But if you had a consistently established pattern of everybody seems to have a problem with you, you're probably the problem, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, then it would be it would it would be an issue. But um, yeah, wasn't an issue. And then the course is a national course. Yeah. So the course at the time was eight weeks. It's a little bit longer now. Uh, at the time, the course was eight weeks at Connaught Range, which is uh, in the Canada, Canada uh, region of Ottawa. There at the time, there were various venues that we are utilizing for training, whether they were at Connaught or Dwyer Hill or whatever. And uh, there was there were ranges everywhere. That's where we mostly did our training. And when you say training, what are you training for? Mm-hmm. for well, I mean, it, you know, there's quite the broad mandate, really. I mean, we were doing everything from ambushes to rural operation to, you know, man tracking and firearms and combatives and, and uh, aircraft interdiction, train interdiction, all tubular interdiction, really boat marine operation you know those types of things uh, convoy and and ops planning and that that sort of that sort of thing and uh <clears throat> training and selection obviously goes well for you because you uh resume your career as a as you say full-time ERT operator lower mainland yep absolutely so april of 2007 i joined the team and what does that look like being a full-time operator yeah, well, at the time, the the context was a little bit different because that's at the time of the Surrey 6 murder where uh, six people were gunned down in a, an apartment building in Surrey, British Columbia, and quite a few of those were actually innocent people that were just 
Unfortunately, it seen the shooters, so the shooters dragged him in the room and there was execution style and all of them were, you know, unfortunately executed for, for lack of a better term. And, um, and, and that was a very dynamic time for the lower mainland team. We were, our manpower was a third of what it is now. And um, we did, you know, takedowns and shadowing surveillance and, and house search, high risk search warrants and high risk arrest and, and all kinds of undercover operation, you know, covering the, the operators and, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a constant, like we were, we were constantly engaged in some aspect of the investigation on the Surrey Six murder. And we were, we were so for at least the next three years, if not four, but I mean, we worked on that Surrey Six file for 10 years plus. So there was a lot of that. And then the rest was, you know, the armed and barricaded and the training and the, the, the hostage taking and the, you know, uh, gang shootings and just regular run of the mill, urban setting SWAT stuff, you know? So, so if you're not on assignment, you know, providing cover or a targeted ambush that day or what have you, um, is there a, is there a buzzer system? You get a text message, presumably you're, you're training or you're, or you're doing what you're doing and there's a hostage scenario. I mean, I mean how, how does that come together from someone's barricaded somewhere with a hostage to the guys in the green green flight suit show up. Mm -hmm. At the time, we're in black, actually. Okay. <laughs> and also, we had pagers. <laughs> right. Know? Okay. Yeah. So we 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 had pagers that came in with one nine one one and a variety of other digits. And then what we did is we would call back the center, and then it would say, "Okay, ERT operators from the blue team, Lower Mainland District Emergency Response Team, are required to attend at this location for blah 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 blah." And then it would give us the details of the call. And, um, and and then we'd be heading that way. Now, with that, we also had radio, like police radios. Right. So the the TL, the team leader might actually say, okay, switch to channel, ERT, whatever. And then we'd get to the channel and then they would give us a, a, an, a, an on-the-fly brief with enough information to make a proper risk assessment and head that way without, you know, uh, making the right decisions in terms of how fast we were dri driving, where we were going, and and how much risk was involved, and how we would start ops planning in our heads, and to try to you know preemptively start pro problem solving things before we even hit the ground. And so, and you know, is, is there a a team locker where you've got kit bags set up and ready to go, depending on the environment? I mean, I'm thinking if there's an issue on a ship. In Burrard Inlet, it's going to be very different than you got an active shooter in a school. You got different kit set up for different scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So w w the way the team works is all the guys and their pairs. So we're paired up, and the pairs have all their equipment in their truck. And there's some special lock boxes and special kit, you know, boxes that can be obviously secure your kit and do all this good stuff. And uh, and 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 you essentially have your kit with you at all times. Now, the only thing that we didn't really carry um, everywhere was our marine kit, because I mean, if there is a boat to be to be getting on right now, it's going to take time. Like it, there isn't going to be a rush sure. getting on a boat. Yeah. Uh, but now I would surmise that, and and last I remember, our boys would have their marine kit in their trucks now, because the trucks are the way the trucks are ergonomically um, arranged 
is day and night with what it used to be. So it's much more uh, conducive to having everything you could potentially need. So um, if there's such a thing, what's a what's a standard 911, you didn't see this coming when you got her to bed today sort of call? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, my first call was a hostage taking, for example. Um, and that was the typical ex-husband gets into the house, be- beats his former spouse and uh, take mom-in-law as a hostage. He's got, he's armed with a machete. He has additional weapons in in the house, but it, you know, he's holding a machete and holding mother-in-law. And um, we show up there and we're faced with a set of circumstances where he's holding her, he's holding the blade to her neck with three handfuls of her hair. And the wife is, you know, crying in a corner somewhere, bleeding. And, um, and when we need to problem solve that. So that was... Uh, so who, who's deciding to activate Erd at this point? I mean, this could be in any community, mm-hmm. anywhere in BC or lower mainland. Um, presumably someone's called 911, the neighbor, maybe it's the, the guy with the knife, who knows? Mm-hmm. Someone is saying this is beyond the scope of the regular members. Sure. Uh, well, the call can be made a variety of different ways, but ultimately the critical incident commander is the person that has the final say. So the critical incident commander can be contacted by a district officer, can be contacted by by a, a, a road supervisor or a detachment commander, and the critical incident commander will be provided the details on what it is that's unfolding. And then they will make a call. Sometimes they may even call the TL and say, hey, what do you think? Like, this is what we have. Is there anything we can be useful for here? And the TL and the critical incident commander can have that conversation. If it is clear that it's a ERT activation, then the, the critical incident commander will be making that call and calling the team out until the TL muster at whatever location. We got this and I need you guys. And, and with, a, with a full-time team like we have in the lower mainland here, there's a certain number of you guys around the clock waiting for the call, I guess, eh? Yeah, I mean, they're not they're not actively waiting for calls because there's so much to do in terms of like even preparing for training or 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 doing administrative tasks related to operations that we were engaged in. And every operation that the team is engaged in is a high pro higher profile and 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 likely um with more possible legal ramifications if things aren't done correctly. So it's important to, you know, have the proper follow-up, not just the tactical operation, the response, as in as you generally see in the movie, or mm-hmm. to a certain extent used to be the way, you know, many, many moons ago. Uh, and so there, there's always something to do. There's always training to prepare. There's always studying. There's always courses to complete. There's always preparing for the next trip. There's always, I mean, there's, there is so much to be done. And at the time, um, in those years, the team was also responsible for an enhanced patrol function, which would see them essentially select the calls that had the potential to go uh, south during a patrol shift and just join the regular general duty and, and assist in problem solving those, those calls. And so that was a lot of fun, actually. But eventually the team got too busy 
engage in all kinds of various projects and, and, and investigation and operations to, to the sustainability was no longer there. So it eventually subsided, but we did patrol for almost 10 years. Mm. So, so are you, this scenario, the, the domestic relationship turned violent, turned hostage barricade, are you drilling this somewhere in a, in a warehouse, in an abandoned apartment building? Well, you mean the specific of like the steps that we're going to be taking in or like yeah, if you the, had. The guy with the machete mm-hmm. with, with the ex-wife locked in an apartment, locked in a house, locked in a basement. Yeah. I mean, we, we obviously train for all those contingencies. We, we train, I mean, you'll never know the exact specifics of the circumstances that you'll be faced faced with but you can make it as miserable as humanly possible so that you don't rise to the occasion but you fall back to your level of training and um and i think making the scenarios realistic but also very difficult to problem solve is 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 a key in preparing for those sort those sorts of events now if we had uh, say a, a hostage taking on a 737 and we had the time of negotiation, we would have one team as an immediate action team on the plane ready to go if life and limbs are becoming, you know, imminently in danger while the other team is, say, rotating through a 737 aircraft so that they know exactly what the layout is going to be like and how the movements are going to look and that kind of stuff. So, And then eventually what would happen is the team that's rehearsing would go and replace the immediate action team and the immediate action team would go and do the same drilling. So if the circumstances and, the t- and, and, if, and if time allows for it, definitely they'd be doing that. So in this scenario, when, when your buzzer's going off because it's, I don't know, 2008, 2010, whatever it is, you guys are headed to this apartment block, let's call it. Do you already know the gameplay generally? Do you know who's standing where, who's doing what? Yeah, so we'll have a general understanding of what, first of all, everybody has a different job. So depending on the specialties, you know, you will have your snipers and your breachers and the people that get you inside the stronghold. And then you will have your containment elements that that are assigned with, you know, dogs and, and, and dog handlers and whatnot. Um, and so there is a general understanding with some flexibility, with some built-in flexibility. And then when you get to see, once, once on scene, then it can be ascertained, okay, this is who our containment teams are going to be. And as the, as the guys were coming in and filling in, we would be filling the positions where we're a little bit light on bodies. I'm sure rules of engagement is probably the wrong word for policing, but um, if, if the ERT team's been activated, are we already in a scenario where the the threat level to to you know to to persons is that is is somewhere where you're already thinking about you know direct action and damaging property, knocking in doors, windows um, that maybe the general duty guys who are immediately there weren't even thinking about. Oh yeah, of course. I mean there is there is a, an established protocol when dealing with armed and barricaded, and a lot of it has to do with the psychology behind being in your house or being in a stronghold and thinking that you're nice and safe in there. So yeah, we will do everything in our power to disturb that sense of peace and and calm and safety that you have. So that you start understanding that, hey, 
the team is probably coming in next. So your 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 moves um, are going to change. Whereas if if the person is if it's a criminal barricade, so there's a distinction that has to be made here. If it's a criminal barricade, it's a, it's it's treated completely differently than if it's a mental health barricade. If we have somebody inside that has a a documented history of mental issues, um, you know things are going to move a lot slower. We're going to have a mental health professional come to scene. We'll have a lot of the command triangle, which is the negotiators the critical incident commander, the earth team leader, and whoever is there to assist, a mental health professional or whatever the case may be, are going to have a lot more collaborative approach, even though there's collaboration going on all the time, there'll be a lot more collaborative approach to problem solve the call without sending the person that's in mental distress essentially in, you know, in the deep end and and really escalate on account of not having to taken the proper precaution to deal with it. But when we are dealing with a criminal barricade, it's a completely different story. The person is arrestable, they've committed an offense. That offense was serious enough for the team to be activated and the presence of weapon is almost guaranteed. The propensity to use them is almost guaranteed. And now it's just a question of how can we split the difference between not staying here for 19 hours and also resolve this so that the guys can go back to bed in the event that another call comes in or get spread get spread thin because another call comes in somewhere around the city. So in a very, very dynamic environment, like in an urban setting or the urban settings, because we're covering multiple cities that we have here, having the team engage on a call for 19 hours is not great at all because right. there's too much going on at all times. Uh, the mental health health piece, I appreciate that. You know, that's probably something not a lot of people know that even 10 years ago, there was that amount of sophistication. But leaving the mental health barricade aside, the, 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 the classic criminal barricade, um, you know, I, I appreciate you're probably immediately thinking about um, preserving, you know, innocent people and eliminating the threat to the broader, broader public. But um, who on the team is thinking about this is probably going to end up in court at some point. Someone, if, if they walk out of here alive, is going to appear in front of a judge. And we're going to need evidence and statements. And, and how, and what I'm imagining is a very rapidly evolving, probably late at night, probably imperfect information. Who's thinking about continuity of, of the exhibits and the who knew what when and where the grounds were assembled. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody bears some responsibility in that regard. So it's not like you can really deflect, you know, the whole thing to somebody and say, okay, that person is accountable for the investigative steps that are taken. But um, what I will say is, generally speaking, an investigative unit will be li linked up with the command triangle. Mm. That investigative unit will provide investigative assets to do certain things. You know, perhaps it's uh, a part six or getting, uh, you know, electronic, uh, whatever the case may be, or getting a warrant going because maybe it's an in-progress call, but we still don't have a Feeney warrant or something right. like that. So right. that somebody's going to have to be writing that. And it certainly isn't going to be the earth guys doing it. Right. And so, but in terms of evidence preservation, those types of things, the guys also have to be 
to be thinking about that because they're going to have charter issues and they're going to be arresting people and they're you know they're they're right. so so everybody and the critical lens commander needs to know that when they're approving a certain option or or an option on a certain mission set that that option is actually reasonable based on the totality of the circumstances and that's the conversation between the CIC and the command triangle so the TL the the the, the negotiators and the mental health professional if there's a need and 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 the CIC has to have the ability to 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 look at themselves in the mirror and say yeah this under the circumstances this was uh, warranted and it was justified and it's there wasn't a way around it and even if there was a way around it that was the best option at the time for a b c reasons you know how many of the the really dynamic takedowns that you've been involved in your career um, ended up in court where, where charges have been laid and and there's going to be a trial was is that was that a common occurrence mm-hmm. yeah it was uh, i think part of it was the Surrey Six took a massive, you know, amount of manpower and 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 investigating, and and so we had a lot of our cases go to trial, but also the majority of the calls that we are, and I'm, the general duty calls, like where somebody is, say, um, assaulted the wife, and they're now in the house with with rifles. Like we know that those things go, they generally didn't go anywhere very often, or they ended up in a plea. Uh, bargain and so we really didn't see but if there was kinetic portions to this plan like a dynamic takedown on a vehicle and there was some property damage there was maybe some physical injuries sustained or or the or the investigation was of such a scope that there was a propensity by you know the lawyers to to attempt to discredit the ERT response basically and so to bring to bring to bring in a reasonable doubt and um and and so yeah a lot of a lot of the armed and barricaded a lot of the gang takedowns a lot of the uh, high-risk search warrants that we did and at the time you know drugs was a big thing as well and um, those generally went to court they go to court and you're alluding to defense counsel are quick to suggest that maybe the use of force was excessive, was more than necessary, was maybe used to intimidate maybe more than it was to secure evidence or to protect life and limb. Uh, so I, I'm picturing this being put to you on the stand, mm-hmm. that maybe it didn't need to, you know, blow up that car or break that window or, you know, hit this guy in a way that you did. Is, is that the tactic you get sometimes? Oh yeah, I mean we've we've seen it all, uh, you know. And ultimately, what it comes down to, and I'm not focused so much on what defense is going to say to me as much as, do I even know why I'm doing what I'm doing, and do my guys, you know, as I grew through the teams and and started being promoted and be- eventually became a team leader, I really own in like hone in on on that piece, which is, do we know what what we are doing and why we are doing it, and 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 is there other alternative methods that are currently existing, whether it's in our organizations or other organizations, you know, anywhere in the world for all I care, if we could learn from anybody to do things better or, or to have the ability to articulate the decisions that we made or the tactical decisions that we made in a certain context, that is a critical piece. I don't want anybody going to the door or doing certain things if they don't fully understand why they're doing what they're doing. 
because it's critically important for the people to be able to readjust and on the fly if something goes dynamic and I'm not there to, you know, oversee it for them for the element leads to have the ability to say, okay, this is the reason why we are doing this and this is what we are after. So if the circumstances changed, how can I make that happen? You know, in that decentralized command type model. Taking these things to court, do you feel like when you've been on the stand or you've seen um, people working under you on the stand, they're given the opportunity to articulate that to the judge or the jury? Oh yeah, yeah, I spent hours articulating our use of force, hours. And I, I don't know about, at, at, the, at the operator level, is generally not the case. If, if somebody goes, if somebody's, unless they went hands-on with someone specifically and they're arresting, arresting somebody specifically and there's charter uh, breaches, you know, brought in the question or whatever the case may be. But if, from a, an overall operation setup, it would be more going after or going after is not the right word, but challenge the team leaders as to why the decision was made to do certain things. Now, specialty positions within the team would also get challenged like the breachers and, you know, why did you use whatever method of entry and could you not have used something less, you know, intrusive or whatever the case sure. may be. But, uh, yeah. So in, in 2012, um, you transitioned to this role you're talking about from um, being more operational to a leadership role within the teams. Yeah. In 2012 was my first promotion. So I was promoted to the rank of corporal and I was actually very much on the ground. So what we call a ground TL, so a, a ground team leader. So the ground team leader is with, with the team in whatever it is, the containment team, or it can be the IA team, or it can be whatever team is on the ground. And then you have your your overall team leader that generally is the TLO, a tactical liaison officer. That person is generally in the command post. And so the relays occurring between the ground TL saying, based on the totality of the circumstances, this is what we would like to do and this is how we would like to do it. The TLO understands and provides context. So if there are things that the command post is aware of that the team doesn't know, it's important for the TLO, if time permits, to communicate the information so that the guys on the ground can continue to propose courses of actions that are consistent with problem solving whatever issues they might have inside the stronghold. But also so that the, the tactical liaison officer that's in the command post has the ability to articulate to the, the critical incident commander why this is the best option at the time. This is a lot of reporting up and down. Mm -hmm. And this is happening in real time. Yep. And uh, that must have frustrated you sometimes. It's, it has, it can, it can be frustrating. I think the more you know your job and the more you're established as, as somebody that isn't a one-track mind individual. You know, say for example, if you're a TL and all you always want to do is go hard, go hard, go hard, then you're going to have all kinds of pushback from the critical instant commanders because they don't trust that you have the ability to kind of water down your response. Whereas if you're seeing both sides of the coin all the time and you, you seem to be in line with them, they get to trust you. And that eventually was would become the position that I was in. I had a lot of trust put in me. And what it does to certain individuals, I know for me as a person, if you trust me, the last thing I want to do is disappoint you. You know, the last thing I want to sure, do sure. is it, it, it essentially makes me want to be better. 
And so if you trust me with problem solving something, you can rest assured that I wasn't going to fly off the handle and do something completely insane or do something that's completely out of line or do something that has the potential to blow up in our faces, although everything has the potential to blow up in our face. But uh, uh, it was done on account of the information that I knew at the time and, you know, the risk assessment in light of the totality of the circumstances. So, so you, you're kind of promoted to this lead. You've been a Mountie now for 10 years, thereabouts? Uh, seven, uh, what was it? No, uh, probably longer than that. You're probably right, 10 years or so. Yeah, 10 years, exactly. And um, I appreciate you say you had, you know, had support of the guys around you, um, but did you fear you were ready for a leadership position? I don't think you ever feel like you're ready for a leadership position, but I think organically guys were already following me on operation everywhere. And I was a, a, a primary breacher and, a, and an experienced breacher. And I just, I already had the, the trust of, the, of, of, our, of our people. Um, and so whether or not I believe that I, that I was ready was a little bit irrelevant because now I was responsabilized with being ready. So there was no other option than to just really be ready. So, but I think it's the same with anything. It's the same if you get promoted in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or in martial arts, or if you get promoted, you know, we all have a little bit of that imposter syndrome, you know, they'll find out who I'm all about and, and, and realize that I shouldn't be here. You know, like everybody has that little voice, but ultimately I knew that I was built to be a leader. I knew that I was, that I was, that I had put in the time to be a good leader. I just knew that I didn't know all that I didn't know. Right. So I knew there was a lot for me to know. And in leadership, are you dealing with crown now more? Are you putting more reports together? So initially on the team, we were doing uh, TL reporting. So we basically we would have the team leaders report on the actions of the team as a whole. And that became a little bit frowned upon over the years. And we ended up switching to individual police statement uh, and police, uh, what was it? The police statement and police will say, mm. right? And so that's what happened over the years. And we, we really went more of the way. And really, I mean, the majority of our guys were above average police officers anyways. And so a lot of them had major crime experience. A lot of them had drug experience uh, in terms of working the drugs. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so we, it, yeah, it was never an issue. So what's it like being cross-examined then? You're a, you're a team leader, you know, you're in court. So maybe it was 12, 14, 18 months ago, takedown, shots fired. Uh, maybe people got hurt. Um, Crown's just taking you through your evidence. You're sitting there in front of a judge and now defense lawyers putting something to you that charter rights weren't respected. Mm -hmm. Evidence wasn't handled properly. Mm -hmm. Your team wasn't doing what they should have done. How does that experience sit with you? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the same rigmarole, right? It's try to establish a reasonable doubt. And I don't blame them for trying to do that. That's that's their job. And it's actually fairly easy to do, you know? Like, so um, for us, and again, I, I wasn't too, too worried about what defense was going to say. What I worried about was 
do I actually understand the nuts and bolts of the investigation? Do I understand what we were after? Do I understand who that person was and what was the risk associated with them? Do I understand the reason why I used the tactics that I used and why my guys used the tactics that they used? And, and, and was there anything that we could have done differently? And if we did, what was the possible ramifications of that? And why didn't we? You know, I mean, as long as I was able to answer all those questions, I mean, for me, it was just answering the questions. Whether they came at me aggressively or passively, it didn't change anything. You're asking me a question about the method of entry. You're asking me a question about the, the, the method of the arrest or whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened, not... Uh, some, you know, sob story about, you know, because I don't know and I'm trying to fill the blanks. I don't know if that makes any sense. But. No, I mean, it does. And are you guys are you guys learning actively? I mean, you're on the teams for 15 years. Um, Technology is obviously changing. Um, the state of the law is always changing. Is something you're doing at the barricade scenario in 2007 something that in 2019 you'd shake your head at and say, we would never do that today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. First of all, I, I was on the team for 12 just to just to uh, right the wrongs. Sure. But, uh, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, tactical operation is an evolving beast. And even for me now, having been out of tactical operation for three years, I'm completely irrelevant, you know, really. And, and there's other things I can bring to the table, but with respect to currency or to being current in the tactics that are being used or the equipment that's now available and all these other things like you've literally if if you have been out for two years you 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 know you're faced with a completely different set of circumstances so yeah i would say that in those years it was more opportunity and necessity whereas now we have a whole bunch of technology that can really bridge that gap so whereas we would have introduced you know the smallest operator in the attic now we're going to use a camera <laughs> right know? right 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 um and what about the toys mm -hmm. did you know maybe it's an issue of funding but during your 12 years did you feel like um your unit had the the equipment that it needed i would say that at the base level we did um especially you know 12 years ago, 13, 14, now 14, 15 years ago now. Um, a lot of it could have been better, but it was decent. I would say that the last 10 years, the equipment has been stellar on the lower mainland team. And I would say that your teams across the country pretty much are well taken care of. There were certain pieces of equipment that often were running more expen on the, on the on the more expensive side that would have provided us with some additional tools that would have been life-saving. And the only reason why those gaps weren't identified at the time, it's because nothing happened. Right. You know, right. and so there is an element of luck in there. I mean, there was many, many years we didn't have boats for marine operation. Like we have West Coast Marine to respond, but they are in Victoria. And so now you have you know, a team in Victoria that potentially, so imagine you have an active shooter on the ferry. What does that look like? Can we even fast rope out of a helicopter? Oh, wait, we don't have a helicopter. Oh, wait, we don't have any fast ropes or, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, and so there's definitely, and it's really, really difficult to convey, look, we need $3 million, you know, because people don't want to hear it. Like they don't in case of, no, we're not buying it. Well, 
it didn't matter how intricate the business plan was or how logical or well articulated it was. It just didn't seem to to do the trick to try to get us some of the stuff that we badly needed. And now, thankfully, most of those items have been acquired since. But some of those items have taken 10 years to get. And on, and on the training side of the house, uh, you were saying, you know, Surrey 6 was a decade. You've got team guys responding to maybe, um, you know, potentially high conflict files, you know, on a Friday night. In your experience, was there enough time for, for training, for, for the scenarios, for the fitness, for the academic components? Um, so that if you have a situation like a shooter on a ferry, the guys on the team actually know, you know, what that's going to look like from beginning to end. I would say that in the first couple of years, like we were so engaged in operation all the time that we, our training kind of took a backseat and we did train, don't get me wrong, but we didn't train at the rate at which a professional team should be training. In order to make training truly valuable in the tactical world, it has to be unfeathered. You can't have, like, you can't set up an intricate training scenario and 10 minutes in, you get called somewhere, you know, because the logistics associated with that and the effort associated with this and and the people that are showing up to assist and play, you know, bad guys and victims and, and, and the scope of it sometimes is massive. Like imagine doing a university shooting scenario, for example, you may have a hundred role players, you know, imagine setting that up for a Tuesday night and you get a call and done. Right. And so, no, it wasn't ideal at all. And a lot of the times we didn't train, we just went operation to operation. And there is a misconception sometimes in the tactical world that going to operation actually replaces training and it does not. It just, it simply doesn't. So yeah, it's an operational segue, but you want to have, and you want to make things go pear shape during your scenario training, which often doesn't happen in real life. So now you're everything that you have done incorrectly remains unknown because there is nobody to exploit it. So that's a very different way to approach training. Right. Operation, operation, people are freelancing, maybe bad habits are getting ingrained. Maybe people are cutting corners or doing things wrong, but there's no time to point it out, no time to debrief because you're on the next call. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even if there was a time to debrief, I mean, you haven't seen everything because the possible negative ramifications were never exploited by anybody. So you really, you you can say, well, you know, you were looking here when you should have been looking here, but if nobody was shooting at you in that corner and you didn't miss the target and somebody else did get hit in the back, you're actually, you haven't made your point, you know, like, you, well, you have in, in the sense that the person will be like, okay, oh, sorry type deal. But imagine if your partner now gets hit in, you know, in the back by paint, by a paint gun or, or whatever we're using, simunition, uh, which is essentially a paint gun. But um, yeah. We're getting an international perspective on, on, on training here for the full-time MERT team. Do you have any, or did you have awareness about how uh, RCMP operations stack up against uh, West Coast teams in the United States or in Europe? Yeah, we did. We There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of exchanges over the years. Some country, sub-countries obviously are more conducive to, you know, having that synerge synergetical sort of relationship where they're going to come to us and see how we problem solve certain things and we're going to go to them and see how they problem solve certain things and kind of just, um, you know, 
acquire new knowledge and, 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 and push some of our knowledge to others. And that exchange of information is critical because you can be in a box and, 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 and problem solve. It's kind of like brainstorming with yourself. You know, there isn't much brainstorming happening if, if, if the outcome, if your outcome bias and your outcome is predicated on account of the things that you normally do or the things that you know, and so it's limited. And so it's very important to have those crossovers. It's very important to go to other teams. And if teams are thinking out there, you know, we got this dialed in, our training is in house and we never link up with anybody else. You are not as good as you think you are. I can guarantee you that. And how good are we compared to Seattle or LA? Um, I would stack this team up with almost anybody I've ever had the pleasure to train with. I, and that includes some of the soft teams as well. You ever follow cases you were involved in through trial? You, you go to takedown, whether it's, again, at a, at a search warrant or it's, it's um, an arrest at a barricade scenario. Um, and whether you've testified or not, do you, do you follow the arc through to um, what evidence was included, or excluded at trial? Was there a verdict, a sentence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. Uh, the verdict and the sentence, a little bit more seldom because ultimately it really, it really was a little bit irrelevant unless it was specifically as a result of ERT intervention, then I would wanna know exactly what happened so that we may not repeat uh, in the future or whatever the, whatever the case was. And we've had, we've had some of those. Uh, you know, you stay in policing long enough, things things are inevitably going to happen. But for me, it was the case law, you know, that was a critical piece, like case law, is there anything that's relevant to ERT? Is there anything that's relevant to the investigative teams or the investigation that we should know on our next call or exclusion of evidence on account of where or when the notes were taken or, or the consent to search this building was given or whatever the case may be. Um, and so, yes, I did it for the purpose of preventing a blunder on a on a on a on a call somewhere down the line. You're, you're doing this as, as team lead, mm -hmm. monitoring developments in the law, and you're bringing it to the fellows to say, "Hey, guys, this this new decision says you know we can't do this anymore, or if we're going to do this, it has to look like that." Yeah, it's not it's not exclusive to team leaders because this is a, a thinking person game. And all of our people are very capable of problem solving. They're all in, they're all have different area of expertise, you know. So if somebody is a drug expert, for example, they will have a propensity to be to be kind of paying attention to how case law is evolving on a certain tangent, you know, in the drug world. And then if somebody has major crime experience, they may have, uh, you know some injects in terms of the investigation proper. So it, it, it wasn't exclusive to the team leaders. The team leaders ultimately have the responsibility to be in the know, but everybody was doing their own monitoring. And of course we would be fanning. So we would have like email fan out. So when a case law came out that had the potential to affect us or potentially did affect us or was a result of us, definitely we would a send it into an email to basically everybody on the team for them to read. We'd have the team leaders would have team meetings where it was reiterated. And then potentially we would even maybe have the, the, the officer in charge of the team, you know, reiterate certain, certain things. Um, and also, there's a 
a cooperative approach to problem solving things with the investigative units. And those investigative units are very dialed into some of the things that are going to affect their investigation. So they would in turn pass on the information to the team leaders you know last time we did this there was this issue that percolated is there a way to alleviate or to mitigate this or how can we go about differently so that we don't run into the same issue when you, when you talk about the teams i mean how, how many people are we talking about well, 50 the, 10 yeah so the the, the lmd team has uh, about 68 i think right now and so three uh three teams currently so you get about 20 20 per team plus enablers and civilian staffs. And does the team have a special physical location sequestered off from the rest of the rest of the police? Not really. I mean, their their headquarters is with the headquarters. Although the layout within the building is different, mm-hmm. I call it the ugly stepchild building. Okay. <laughs> it's where you can play Metallica super loud unimpeded and everybody loves it. Right. Right. <laughs> And is there a lot of turnover or or once you're in the teams, you're there for your career? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say for your career, but I would say that most guys joining the team stay for a decade. I mean, there has been a lot more movement than I expected it to. And um, but yeah, there's a lot of guys that have been there for a long time as well. I, I'm expecting given the nature of the job, you age out probably more quickly than other units. No, I would say it's the other way around because the, just the emphasis on fitness and keeping, you know, in peak physical conditions and those types of things are really are really keeping our guys incredibly young looking and mm, feeling. You okay. know, like even though there is a higher injury rate and uh, repetitive injuries for you know certain workouts and also the job itself, like being a breacher, maybe you're carrying a hundred pound everywhere you go. So the back and knees and shoulders are gonna it's gonna take a toll. But ultimately the the level of physicality of the of most of the operators is conducive to them doing it for a long time if they are smart. And um what is a breacher? Mm-hmm. So a breacher, the breacher is the person that gains, that finds a way to enter a stronghold, whether that's with an explosive breach or a mechanical breach, maybe using a ram or using a saws or using, you know, some pry tools or whatever the case may be. That is the person that's essentially responsible to take the team from outside the stronghold to inside the stronghold. Right, right. Um, you guys work with police dogs? Mm-hmm. Yes. Are they full-time members as well? No. Uh, the Well, it depends which team you're on. So some of the teams, some of the part-time teams and some of the teams across the country will have earth train designated police dog services handlers. The lower mainland team did not have that. I made a case for that many years ago. I think it would be extremely valuable, but it just did, never happened. But we have designated... ERT dogs, dogs that, you know, are, have the ability to be more quiet, dogs that don't get nearly as jacked up when things are dynamic. Because once you start throwing the flashbangs and breaching multiple multiple windows and doors and maybe doing an explosive charge entry or and with all the guys, you know, running around doing things, having a dog that doesn't get overwhelmed is critical. So and having a handler that doesn't get overwhelmed is also critical. So it's it's. It's one of the one of the specialty for the dog world. So, if you are an ERT member, does everyone have to have a certain comfort level working with the dog? <laughs> I would I would expect that calls where you have a, a a police dog showing up are just going to operate differently. 
No, I would say we have police dogs on most of our calls and containment positions at the very least. And th there's also other additional tactics that we can use, like long linings, you know, a dog inside a, a compound or, or a stronghold if we needed to, and perhaps to conduct a partial search or an extraction or whatever the case may be. So there is a variety of different tactic, tactics that can be used. But I would say a general overall sense of comfort or <laughs> a general comfort with dogs is is a paramount qualities because we, the people we deal with have dogs all the time and organized crime groups have dogs that are trained to do certain things to certain people coming through the door. You didn't finish your career with ERT. You transitioned at some point. I did, yeah. How did you know it was time to move on? I'm not sure that I knew it was time to move on. Um, I did realize that I was getting increasingly tired. I think I was, at the time, the team was so operationally engaged. And as a team leader, there are certain expectations. Expectation number one is that you will lead by example, by being capable of doing the things that the guys are doing, perhaps at times better. Other things are taking a bit of a backseat, like I wasn't shooting as much as the guys because I was always in meetings, those types of things. But you're certainly in the, in the, in the field of your own uh, area of responsibility, which would be command and control, which would be operations planning and 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 getting ready for the next call is kind of in, you know, you're expected to operate at a very high level, also maintaining all the other skills, including your, your fitness and everything. So you have a compounding eff effect of, um, of very difficult things being required of you in a heartbeat and, and and you must have the ability to maintain all of those. And that was starting to, after 12 years, that was starting to take a toll on me. And I would start to see that perhaps I had some really small slippage on certain things that I shouldn't have maybe in training or, and it's really interesting because, you know, we're always hardest on ourselves because I, I used to say, speak to, to my team about that. And it'd be like that, you know, that was nothing like it was, you know, you know, they would, they would essentially downplay it and say, and it's not that they were accepting a lower standard. It's just that my standard for myself and what I expected of myself was extremely high. And sometimes maintaining that standard just was very difficult on account of the additional ancillary duties that I had as a team leader. And so to answer your question, I, I, started realizing that I was tired, that perhaps a consideration should be given to, is there a life after this and where am I going? Or is it within the team in another capacity or, you know, what what is in store for me or what's next for me? And uh, at the exact time that I started toying with some of those questions, I was approached by the commanding officer of the division at the time and offered to consider if I would take on the role of advisory non-commissioned officer for the commanding officer of the province of British Columbia and bring my leadership abilities and experience to the service of the commanding officer's office and the executive floor. An offer you can't refuse? <laughs> some might say, yeah. some might say, but um, having been on the team for so long and, and, and that having been what I always wanted, it wasn't so simple. It was very difficult to make the call. It was very difficult to 
it took me eight months actually, because the first time she spoke to me about it, it, the person in the position was to remain in that position for quite some time. And so there was really no urgency in me making a call, but the closer it, you know, the closer we got to 2019, where the person was actually now heading out the doors, I was forced to make a call. It was eight months later. And um, I essentially, my last conversation with her was something along the lines of, I don't know if this is for me. And she basically said, look, you can go back to the team and do what you've been doing for 12 years, or you can take a greater opportunity and come here and use your leadership to affect the life of 8,200 employees. And at that time, I had started really f- laser focusing on leadership, on leadership training, on, on, on courses and standards that we were going to establish as a team for the people coming through the ranks and some of the processes that we were going to use to make them as good as we possibly could as leaders. And also su- succession planning. I had worked succession planning to the point where my team was self-operating and they did not need me, which was a perfect timing for me to go. And so I made the call and I left and joined the seventh floor of the commanding officer's office where we no longer played Metallica, but we played classical music. (laughs) And is a dramatic change in your day-to-day, I gather. Yes and no. The HR, you know, the the human resources and, and people problems were very similar. I mean, you know, I was dealing with um, all kinds of conflicts and it it was just more that there was more units and more people that had access to me now. And also I was sitting in front of a computer. You're not on the street. I am not. I was sitting in front of a computer 10 hours a day, sort of, and on the phone, problem solving, problem solving on the computer, writing emails, writing memos, writing business cases. Um, and in high level meetings, you know, proposing certain course, courses of action or whether or not certain courses of actions were appropriate based on the totality of the circumstances as far as the ground troops were concerned. And also relaying to the ground troops what was actually being done at the commanding officer's office so that we could have that symbiotic relationship, which wasn't the case before. It's almost like, you know, these guys are operating, doing what they think they do and they and then looking on the other side, thinking what that they know what these guys are doing and vice versa. And ultimately they're pulling in the same direction, but they just don't know they are. So it was important for me to be that person that bridged a gap representing the commanding officer with the troops, representing the troops of the commanding officer. Now in that capacity, my job wasn't to tell everybody what they wanted to hear. My job was to tell them what was, which is very different. And I took that very seriously. So for example, and this was not the case, but had it been the case that, you know, in the commanding officer's office, there was certain things happening that I didn't agree with for me to not say a word on account of self-preservation and then go back to the troop and say, oh, everything's good. I never, ever, ever would do that. I would have lost my job long before ever compromising my own integrity that way. So what would happen would be if there was something completely either out of line or which wasn't the case really, but if there was something, there was some misconception around or, or, and I propose a certain course of action and that course of action was 
uh, rebutted or, or, or denied or, def- or refused on account of additional factors that I perhaps wasn't privy to, then we would have that conversation. And when I came out, I had a full understanding of the bigger picture so I, can, I, can act- I could actually communicate that bigger picture to the ground troops. So it wasn't about telling, telling them things that upper management wanted me to tell them. It was more about me telling him things that were. And are those uh, those communication channels open and well received enough that you're not just banging your head against a wall on both ends? You getting some satisfaction from brokering? Well, it, it depends. <laughs> um, so at the at the executive level here in in E Division in BC, not a problem. I banged my head against the wall dealing with other divisions right. or dealing with the the central hub, which was Ottawa. Uh, there's there was a lot of banging heads there, even though there's a lot of good people there as well. But just our geographical slash demographic slash operational realities are completely different. And so it's very difficult to have a cookie cutter approach across an entire country. And you can't really have that. And that's more of a centralized command model. And I vehemently despise it. It doesn't work for policing because it's not fast enough. It's not fast enough for how, how quickly things are evolving. It's not fast enough for how dynamic things get. And it's certainly not fast enough for the difference in the various provinces to keep up. And so I would say that my headbutting was mostly with, with the headquarters. Your title here is divisional sergeant major, right? Position held for two years, but then you walked away and you retired. Mm-hmm. How'd you know it was time to go? So. The, the sergeant major position theoretically is a minimum of two years, a commitment of two years. Now, it's a very administratively loaded position and it's extremely difficult for one person. And, um, and I, I knew that I wasn't gonna extend that position, so I didn't wanna extend. So now the question was, where am I gonna go after this? Right. And the reality is I joined the RCMP to be on the emergency response team. So for me, the prospect of going somewhere else was very unappealing. And so I started having the conversations about going back to the team as the um, ops or operations non-commissioned officer, which when I left the team in 2019, I would have been a team leader on one of the operational team. If I returned to the team, I would have been a team leader of the team leaders. And so with that came a variety of challenges Right, and and those challenges were also compounded by the fact that I was going to have to requalify on all my emergency response team right. skills, which right. I hadn't been obviously keeping up with because I I didn't have time, but also that I was going to have to be back on call, that I was going to have to to miss the birthdays and the parties and the right. and the kids this and that and the other. And I just came to the realization after not being on call for two years that I really didn't want to get called three, four times a week at night at 2 a.m. to stay out all night until seven or eight and and come back home and then go to my shifts and do my training shifts. It's a young man's game. It is, and it's, and it's also very engaged and very committed. You have to be extremely committed. It's not that you can't have all these other things like family life, and but it is a sacrifice. And if the team is busy, you are expected to do what it takes so that the work gets done. And it's very, very demanding on the personal side and on the professional side. And so I, I, I started looking at myself in the mirror and realizing 
I don't think you want to go back. You know, I, I, I was honest with myself. I, I know you love the idea of it. And, and I know you love what it used to be and what your job used to be. But your job is going to be different now. It'll, it'll be very different and it will be administratively loaded as well, but you'll still get the call outs and you'll still get the HR issues. And I just didn't have it in me. Right. And so the question became, so where am I going? Right. And and I, I knew that from having been out and having built relationship outside, relationships outside the RCMP for many, many years, I knew that I could bring my skill set you know, to the highest bidder, <laughs> right, 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 outside the outside the organization, and I was going to take a payout so that I could have some money to invest in my business upon retiring. You know, and so I was going to have the money to start something and the capacity to do it. And so, what was what would have been the holdback for me? You know, pension potentially or medical situations or unforeseen medical situations or whatever but ultimately you know as we spoke as we spoke before this started recording in life is just the way it is you make a left turn you make a right turn you take the flight you shouldn't have been taken you get in a car you shouldn't have been getting into whatever the case may be something is going to get you you're going to pay for some of the decisions that you make and you have no idea but you also will get rewarded for a lot of decisions that you make and you also have no idea which one those are. <laughs> so so ultimately it's just calculated risk, knowing full well that if I needed to return to policing, there is nothing to prevent me from doing so. And that I'd left in good terms enough that that would be a, a, an acceptable course of action if something, if something happened. And this is um, summer 2021? Mm-hmm. March of 2021. March 2021, 20 years served, mm-hmm. you're out. And um, what what does the highest bidder look like for Seb in the uh, the post RCMP world? Yeah, well, I you know, I was partially par- partially joking w- with that comment. Of course, I mean it's just that it's it's no secret that the that the civilian world that very demanded skill sets. Um, and, and, and areas of expertise that can bring some, some decent paydays in, in doing certain uh, tasks or being cert- or doing certain jobs on account of having spent 20 years developing a certain skill set. And, and that's the way it should be. But for me, what it evolved into is doing meaningful things with meaningful people. Right. I really take on the things that I want to do, you know, whether it's that consulting piece uh, it can be in the command and control world. It could be in the in the tactical world. It can be in the security world, or it could be in the performance coaching world. So it's one of the things we haven't spoken about is I've been training athletes for you know 12, 13 years. I had three gyms in the Lower Mainland at one point, uh, two founded by myself and my business partner, and I have a martial arts studio as well. And so I had a lot of engagement in a variety of other endeavors, and having the ability to develop and mentor people almost in a 360 degree realm within their own lives kind of brought that you know life coaching sure. type yeah. quality yeah. to yeah. to the whole thing and um and 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 I was able to do performance coaching and one-on-one you know sessions and 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 then take the contract that comes in like going overseas and, and working on a security, uh, like 
putting together like a, a security course, for example, for somebody operating in a different environment, in a more dangerous and dynamic environment, or perhaps a command and control course, or perhaps leadership, perhaps leadership training, which I've done a lot of for various police forces. And so all those things were within the purview of my company, Raven Strategic. Right. Um, <clears throat> so your, your entrepreneurial ventures are sort of stretched between um, uh, martial arts, real physical training, sort of hands-on aspect, uh, as well as consulting that you do under Raven Consulting. Um, what are your interests in gyms currently? You said you've, you've had ownership interest in a couple gyms mm-hmm. uh, currently? No. Uh, so two of my gyms, I, I, 2016, I believe, was the last that I was uh, part owner. I coached until 2021. Uh, when I released from the RCMP, I stopped coaching, but I did it for a decade. Um, and so I continued working with some clients, you know, in consulting and creating programs, doing those types of things. But I, I have less and less inclined in doing that now. And so all that's left now is my martial arts studio and the rest of the stuff that I take on with Raven Strategic, which is basically whatever I want to do becomes you know, something, if, if it's something that I can actually produce on, if it's something that I, that I know I can take on and something that I can really excel at, I will take it on, even if it's a little bit outside the scope of my area of expertise. Um, you know, it sounds like you had a full career. Do you have any regrets? Any, um, we talked about left turn, right turns. Was there a, a promotion you should have taken, an, uh, an assignment that you passed on that you wish you took? You look back saying, you know, there's something there I missed. I think if anything, I was at a crossroad before I left the military where I was offered to go to selection for certain units in the military. If I was to redo, I would probably take that. No, hindsight is twenty twenty. We didn't know about 9-11. At the time, the Canadian forces were grossly underfunded, not that they're that much better now, <laughs> but certainly during the Afghan war, um, it was a lot better. Uh, knowing what I know now with what happened on 9-11, I probably, it would have been the perfect, it would have been the perfect way for me to go and that I could have transitioned to certain units of the Canadian forces, provided that I made, I made it in and everything, and I could have spent the next decade doing military work overseas and potentially transition to policing eventually anyways, you know? Sure. Yeah. But the other way around just wasn't in the cards, right? Once you join policing, it's you're not going backwards. Right, right. Uh, so what's next for you? What's next for strategic consulting? What's next for fitness? Any projects in the pipeline? Yeah, I have a I have a variety of different projects. Uh, Anything you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm currently writing a book with one of my friends and business partner, uh, Sean Taylor, who's a former uh, special operator and warrant officer from the Canadian Forces. And so we are, we've recorded and now we are in the sort of editing stages of this book, which is essentially about the pursuit of excellence in a 360 degree world. And I think it's going to bring a lot of value to people that are seeking and pursuing excellence on how to mitigate the risk associated with being singularly minded and perhaps 
missing certain things along the way or painting yourself in boxes along the way and making decisions that potentially have critical ramifications maybe on your on your personal life or maybe on your professional life and how we communicate those through our own experiences along the way and what we have witnessed with some of our people or you know whatever the case may be so that's the the, the book is one piece um, I have a travel vlog that I'm working on right now. I, I'd love to do more of that. Um, I also have, you know, some some photo shoots going on, and I have some podcasting opportunities overseas where I'm going to be heading off, likely to the UK and doing some work there. And then there's some overseas work coming out as well down the line for me. So, like I said, meaningful things with meaningful people, things I really want to do, projects I get in, I, I'm really engaged in. Uh, I will also do a lot of work with police forces locally because I've been tapped on the shoulder to do resilience and leadership training, those types of things, which are areas that I'm still very, very interested in. And I have, my heart is with the RCMP, obviously I spent 20 years with the RCMP and I will continue to be engaged at all levels of, you know, training opportunities or leadership or whatever the case may be so that the members sort of on the street and, and the members in the office and the members of the RCMP are still taken care of, even though I'm no longer responsible for it, theoretically. Seb, I, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming by and thanks for your service. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man.